Welcome to our Norwich Early Settlement podcast tour. My name is Sarah Rooker, and I'm the director at Norwich Historical Society. This podcast tour is narrated by your Norwich neighbors. Linda Cook and Bob Parker are your hosts, guiding you along the way. And property owners of some of Norwich's earliest homes will tell you about the properties they steward. I'm Bob Parker. My father was born in Thetford. My mother, Laura Bradley Parker, was born on Bradley Hill. Her father, grandfather, and great-grandfather were Norwich families. I'm Linda Cook. Our family has been part of the Norwich community since the late 1700s. The Cook family has been active in the community throughout all the many years in both elected and appointed positions. They've served on the select board, in the fire department, as firefighters and officers, as listers, a road commissioner, the fire warden, town constable, and overseer of the poor, now known as town service officer. My grandfather, Comrie Cook, served as overseer of the poor, as an officer in the fire department, as chief observer of the watchtowers during World War II. He lived to be 104 years old and is buried at Hillside Cemetery. We'll start and end our tour here at the Norwich Historical Society. There are eight stops along the way. As you listen, we'll give directions to each stop. When you hear the music, pause the podcast until you reach the next stop on your tour. You can also follow the podcast on the accompanying map. Most of the stops on this tour are near private homes. Please do not park in or block driveways. On July 4, 1761, Benny Wentworth, the royal governor of New Hampshire, granted a charter to a small group of men called proprietors in Connecticut, giving them permission to establish the town of Norwich. The timing was right. Population pressures were building in the southern New England pushing people to look north for significant acreage to farm. The French and Indian War had just ended, meaning the new land was finally free from danger of the Indian raids, and a new bridle path from Charlestown, New Hampshire, up the Connecticut River to Hanover, made travel overland more possible. A month after receiving the charters, the proprietors gathered at William Waterman's Tavern in Mansfield, Connecticut, to decide upon the first steps to be taken to settle the wilderness land. For many, this was a land speculation venture. Few would actually move to Norwich. There was much to discuss at those first meetings in Connecticut. They had to divide up the land, setting aside a share for the Society for the Propagation of the Gospel in foreign parts, a share a glebe, or piece of land for the Church of England, a share for the first settled minister, and one share for a school, and 500 acres for Governor Wentworth himself. They had to think about roads and find men to construct mills so they would be able to saw boards and grind their grain or corn. They sent surveyors north carrying heavy links and chains to lay out the lots and report back on the topography and soil. Our first stop is down by the river. 
Turn right out of the driveway and follow Main Street down to the light just before Ledger Bridge. Turn left and then park, make another left into the parking area and you'll see the railroad station straight ahead. If you are able, we recommend that you leave your car and walk the path over to the bridge and then under the bridge to fully park. You can better see the confluence of Blood Brook and the Connecticut River. Stop 1. The River Downriver, past the Ledger Bridge, is the confluence of the Connecticut River and Blood Brook. Imagine Abenaki people fishing along these banks. Abenaki oral traditions state that the Abenaki people were created here and have always been here. The names on the land and waters remind us of those ancient peoples. Kwanitook, or Long River, is the Abenaki way of saying the Connecticut River's name. Escutney comes from Kaskadnak, or Wide Mountain. Mosbaozak Zibosis, or Mink Brook, is the name for the stream that enters the Connecticut River in Hanover, just south of Blood Brook. Bimanosek, at the fishing place, is the name for the old village ground at Pompanusik, upriver about five miles. Now imagine approaching this narrow spot on the river in a birch bark canoe and imagine the river much narrower without Wilder Dam. You've been paddling and pulling upstream in the shallows against the current for 10 to 15 days, all the way from Connecticut. You see Blood Brook with its rapids that might be used to power future mills. Notice the flat open ground around the mouth of Blood Brook, and to the south grassland and shrublands. Thick forests lead to the hills beyond. There are Abenaki Indians living in a small community at the mouth of Mink Brook and a larger community up in Pompanusik. You would have found a fully inhabited land. Norwich elders James and Harriet Brigham told their son Fred in the early 20th century that Indians were numerous in the area in this post-1760 period. Another local descendant of the first 18th century Norwich settlers, who identifies as Abenaki today, said when her English ancestors arrived by canoe, their Abenaki ancestors were well established. Abby Metcalf, Norwich farmer, also shared stories of the close ties her Metcalf ancestors had to local Abenaki. Some members of this Abenaki community are buried in the Metcalf family plot. And the Metcalf family down to the 1960s retained an old eight-row dent corn that they grew annually on their Dutton Hill Road farm, which was most likely a gift from their Abenaki friends. Abenaki gifts of knowledge and understanding of living on this land were vital for the survival of these early settlers. It is likely that about a third of Norwich was cleared grasslands when Jacob Fenton, Ebenezer Smith, and John Slafter, the first English settler, arrived in the spring of 1763 and stayed through the summer. More men and boys followed, spending the warmer months clearing the land and planting corn and other crops in open areas and between the dead trees, returning to Connecticut for the winter.
To clear the densely forested land, they cut the enormous trees using the big trunks and limbs for log cabins and outbuildings. They placed the stumps of the trees in rows for the first fencing and then burned the remaining debris. If a good burn resulted, they planted wheat and corn for their first crop. Two families, the Hutchinsons and the Messengers, wintered in a cabin near here. The uninsulated cabin with a bark roof, dirt floor, was divided into sleeping areas with blankets and with no chimney or hearth must have been a trial. The families would share the cutting of the wood and keeping of the fire in the middle of the cabin, as well as hauling of the water from the river. The frozen river would have served as a highway for obtaining supplies. The early account tells of a settler traveling up the river by sled 20 miles to Newbury, Vermont, to trade for corn with a family who had been in the area for three years. Another account tells of a settler taking his corn to the Abenaki Canoe Village at the mouth of the White River and then canoed him south to Charlestown, New Hampshire, where the only available grist mill was found. They then paddled the fortunate settler back up to the White River Village. With no grist mill, corn was pounded in a wooden mortar with a large pestle. To pound a bushel of corn by hand could take as much as a full day of hard work. The finer part of the grain was made into cakes. The coarser part, called hominy, was boiled and eaten with milk if there was a cow. The establishment of the grist mill would be a welcome indeed. Now head back up the hill to Norwich. After the lights, you will see a big blue house on the right. Find a safe place to pull over along on Main Street. Stop two, the Hatch Peisch House. Hi, my name is Lily Tryman. My family and I moved into the Hatch Peisch House in 2014, and we have really enjoyed learning about its previous owners. As far as we can tell, we're the seventh or eighth family to have owned the house, and we very much like seeing how each subsequent owner has changed the layout of the house and updated it to fit their needs. This 1773 house is said to be the first frame house in Norwich, built by Joseph Hatch, who came to Norwich from Preston, Connecticut in the 1760s. This area of Norwich, once known as Burton's Plain, became an attractive place to settle as the easily tilled soil is composed of bottom sediments of the one-time glacial Lake Hitchcock. Years before, after surveying the town and dividing it into sellable 100-acre range and river lots for the proprietors, Hatch purchased a large section of land up here on the plain where he erected a log cabin. Look across the street to the first brick house. Hatch's log cabin was located just over there. In March 1768, voters gathered in this log cabin for the first town meeting. They elected officers such as the moderator, fence viewers, tithing men, and a constable. They decided on burying grounds, ministers, taxes, bridges, and roads. These positions and activities were all part of building a community. It would be 20 years before they were to build a school, burying the dead, meeting to worship, establishing passable roads, and raising the funds to make it all possible took precedence. 
Town meeting would eventually shift up the hill to Norwich Center, today the intersection of Union Village and Maple Hill Roads, away from the small log cabin. And in 1773, Joseph Hatch would build his new house. The presence of a sawmill operating in town, at the point where Elm Street crosses Bloodbrook today, meant that the construction of bigger framed homes with clapboard siding was possible. Undoubtedly, Joseph Hatch used boards from this mill to build this two-story, steep-gabled house with a big central chimney. The arrangement of the five second-story windows with the middle one at a distance from the others and placed directly over the door is similar to houses in the area from which he came in Connecticut. Continue towards Norwich and turn right onto Church Street. Follow Church Street for about a mile. Bear left, continue a short distance to Loveland Road. Turn around on Loveland Road and find a spot to stop facing the river. Stop three, the ferry. I'm Buff McLowry. I grew up in Hanover and have lived on Bragg Hill Road in Norwich for almost 50 years. This area at the foot of Loveland Road was known as Ferry Place. In 1790, the first ferry was replaced by a rope ferry. Rope Ferry Road across the river led to the middle of Hanover. The ferry docked at the bottom of Loveland Road, which originally led to what was once Norwich Center. Loveland Road was bisected with the construction of I-91. The Slafter family was one of the area's first settlers. Samuel Slafter of Mansfield, Connecticut was one of the proprietors who met to divide the land and plan the town. Like the majority of Norwich's original proprietors, he never settled in the town. Instead, he sent his son John to make the journey through the forests of New Hampshire. He had served as a 16-year-old drummer boy in the French and Indian War. Following the end of the war, he returned to Connecticut and then journeyed to Norwich, where he began to fell trees on his river lot. It was customary for the men to build a rough home of logs prior to the arrival of the entire family. They often cleared land and planted crops, such as corn, so it was available when the family arrived. After several years of making journeys northward and then returning to Connecticut, John Slafter married Elizabeth Hovey. John brought Elizabeth by canoe to the log house he had built by the river. Inside the bed, table, and chairs were made of rough, split logs. These early years by the river were challenging. There were no blacksmiths or carpenters to call for repairs. The new arrivals would have been grateful for the squash, sunflowers, sunchokes, and pumpkins shared by the Abenaki women. The first potatoes raised in Windsor County were the product of a bushel of potatoes carried by John Slafter from Charleston to Norwich. At the outbreak of the American Revolution, New England's northern frontier was unprotected and again susceptible to British and Native American attack.
The day after the Declaration of Independence was read, from the balcony of the old state house in Philadelphia, fearing the safety of his own family, Slafter sent his wife and two children back to Connecticut. When John returned to his deserted home, he made the entry in his journal. Norwich, July 5th, 1776. Elizabeth, Christina, and Farewell set out for Mansfield, driven off by fear of Indians. During the war, he kept a quantity of snowshoes available in readiness for scouting parties and stored provisions at his house against an alarm. While the communities at this time were fearful of British and Native American attacks from Canada, they had a more reciprocal relationship with a local Abenaki. It is likely that snowshoes, baskets, tool handles, pung sleds, and toboggans for winter hauling and a wide variety of other essential items were being made and traded or sold to non-native settlers throughout this period. Like many of the Norwich early settlers, John Slafter would find the lowlands by the river too wet for cultivation and move to higher land away from the river. Now continue up Route 5 for a very short distance and take your first left on the Goodrich Four Corners Road. Follow it until you reach the intersection with the Union Village Road. Find a place to pull over by the Big Yellow House. Stop four, the Slafter House. Hi, I'm Kristen Graham. My husband Tom and I purchased the Slafter property in the year 2000 from Joe and Dory Young, who used it as a summer place for about 20 years. We lived in it with our four children for a few years and then moved to a home we built farther back on the property. We have leased the house and land to farmers since 2005 and have been thrilled to support the return of farming to this important historic property in Norwich. In 1786, three years after the end of the revolution, and 20 years after they first moved to Norwich, the Slafters were in search of better draining soil and more open terrain than their riverbank land provided. They moved two miles inland to this land away from the banks of the river and began to build the house you see here. The heavy timbers that make up the frame of the house are visible in many of the rooms inside the house. These hand-hewn timbers were made using a broad axe, leaving axe marks along their rough sides, marks very likely made by John Slafter and his sons, who would have helped him build the house. By this point, there was a sawmill in town, which meant that the Slafters were able to cover the timbers with clabbered siding, a much more refined look than the log cabin they had been living in. The Slafters built this house in the style of the more commodious and expensive houses of the day. It originally had a hipped roof with a very large central chimney. According to a Slafter descendant writing in 1889, the chimney was an immense structure in the center of the house, having three ovens where the family bread and meats were cooked for the table. 
The hipped roof was replaced with the gable roof you see today, most likely around 1900, when this kind of updating was done to many old New England farmhouses. The central chimney would have been removed and replaced with two or more small chimneys to serve wood stoves placed in various rooms around the house to provide more even heating. Farming remained the dominant activity in Norwich throughout the 19th century. The Slafters maintained a farm here at Goodrich Four Corners for the rest of their lives. Like most Vermont farms in the first decades after settlement, their farm would have been quite diverse in an effort to meet the majority of their needs. They likely grew corn, potatoes, oats, and plenty of hay to support their livestock, and probably had a small apple orchard and a sugar bush. The hills around the house that had more slope and rocks were suitable for grazing animals. Rocks would have been removed from these fields by hand and used to make the stone walls that are visible in the woods around the property today, just like the many stone walls you see around Norwich. A sheep boom in the early 19th century meant that at one time there were approximately 10,000 sheep in town. Just think, more sheep than people. John Slafter complained that his sheep often became the prey of wild beasts, what with the many wolves and mountain lions that roamed this area at that time. The state of Vermont offered a bounty of eight pounds for the destruction of a wolf or mountain lion. So John Slafter constructed animal traps by digging holes that were impossible for a predator to climb out of. He placed a lamb near the hole to serve as bait. Today, the rhythm of the agricultural year remains the same as it was for the Slafter family. Although today, only a handful of people in Norwich make a living by farming. As you can see, this property is the home of Hogwash Farm, a meat CSA. Stop by the farm stand and check it out. We will continue now by turning left onto Union Village Road and travel south for about two miles. Turn right onto Alcott Road and park on the side of the road with a cemetery to your right. Turn so you are now facing Union Village Road. Stop 5, Meeting House Hill. I'm Emily Zay. And I'm Gib Zay. Both of us, we grew up in the Meeting House Hill neighborhood, specifically on Maple Hill. It was here in the 1990s, early 2000s, that Emily and I got to spend our childhood, which was absolutely awesome, with fields and woods and springs and all the haunts that one would want from living in a super old house. Uh, it definitely evoked my imagination, and I spent a lot of my childhood playing American Revolution or French and Indian War out in the woods with my friends and building uh, some pretty substantial forts, one of which uh, you can actually see from Google Maps satellites. It was an awesome place to grow up. It's truly special. Considered to be the geographical center of the town, this area was known as the center. Travelers once crossed the river by rope ferry and traveled up Loveland Road to this center. Roads projected from the center to all parts of town and to the river. 
You could say that the east-west road was the Interstate 89 of the past, once linking up to the Stratford Turnpike, today's Turnpike Road. The Stratford Turnpike was a heavily traveled route running from Boston to Burlington. Many of these early roads were at first narrow bridle paths or cart tracks, wide enough for an ox cart in the summer and a sled in the winter. Norwich's first meeting house was built just south of the burial ground. The building of a meeting house, like the roads, was supported by taxing the entire community. In less than 10 years from the time the first clearing was made in Norwich, the first steps were taken to provide for a meeting house that might accommodate everyone. Everyone agreed it was essential, though not everyone agreed on where it was to be located. The location of a meeting house often fixed the location for the center of the entire village. Until the meeting house was built, religious services were scattered about town and families often hiked three to six miles to attend. They met in homes, barns, or out in the open air if the weather was agreeable. The early ministers would travel from town to town to preach. One early minister, Peter Powers, traveled up and down the river in a canoe, calling out to men working on the shore, telling them when he would be back to preach to them. In 1775, when Reverend Potter was to be ordained, the community gathered here on this hill. Eliezer Wheelock, president of Dartmouth College, crossed the river at Rope Ferry and together with a number of white students, Native American students, and several slaves climbed the hill to take part in the service. Construction of the meeting house was a slow process. Building materials along with labor were donated by the townspeople, but the foundation wasn't laid until 1778. The Revolutionary War interrupted building plans and it was not completely finished until 1785. It had 40 pews, including 14 in the gallery. Each pew was designed to hold five families. It was clapboarded outside and plainly plastered inside. There was no steeple, no bell, and no heat. The annual March meeting and winter meetings were often held at nearby homes. This was a great achievement of the first generation of Norwich settlers. More than any other event of the time, this was an undertaking that enlisted the energies of everybody. In June 1785, soon after the meeting house was completed, Norwich hosted the Vermont State Legislature, which held sessions there for 16 days. It must have been quite the procession into town, with fifes and drums escorting the governor and his council. In attendance was Ira Allen, the first treasurer of the state and brother of Ethan Allen. The agenda included the petition of Lucy Terry Prince, an African-American woman from Guilford, Vermont, who had walked to Norwich to present her suit against a neighbor accused of harassment. She convinced the governor and council of her case and won her suit, though it is clear that the racial harassment she had endured continued. In 1817, Norwich's population had doubled and the town had grown prosperous. So a larger second meeting house was built here near the old one at the same time as the South Church was built on the plain near where the bandstand is today and since was rolled across the green to where it now stands. The shifting of the town center to the plain and the general decline of population after 1830 caused a gradual diminishing of this North Church congregation. It was dissolved in 1854 and the remaining members transferred to the South Church. Take a walk in Meeting House Hill Cemetery and notice the women's gravestones. You'll find many women and children. Death was ever present in early Norwich. In the Murdoch lot, you'll find Sally Murdoch, aged 23 years. She was the wife of Constant Murdoch and lived just down the hill where we will visit next. She died while giving birth to their only son, Thomas. While some women died in childbirth, some had many children. Constant's second wife, Lucy, had eight children, all of whom lived to adulthood. Not every family was so lucky. Look across Union Village Road in the fields to the large Georgian yellow house and red barns, today known as Maple Hill Farm. 
Built after the revolution, this was the home of Peter Olcott, one of the town's most prominent citizens. He came to Norwich in 1772 or 1773 and built a simple Cape-style home, choosing this high ground along the road leading from the ferry on the Connecticut River. Town meetings were held in his house after Joseph Hatch's log cabin became too small. He provided the land for the meeting house and this adjoining burying ground, which may have had something to do with the final decision to locate the meeting house at this location. He also kept a store just across Union Village Road from the graveyard. It was the first store in town. Peter Alcott's account books reveal that his store was filled with lush fabrics, sewing items, ivory combs, snuff boxes, and other luxury items, all of which most likely arrived via flatboat on the Connecticut River. An upstream shipment to Norwich in 1780 included rum, molasses, salt, large iron tea kettles, hand skillets, and grindstones. Goods shipped downstream by flatboat would have included ginseng, butter, cheese, beeswax, grain, furs, pork, and logs. Peter Alcott's store reveals that within 10 years of settlement, farmers were already producing surplus goods and were connected to a worldwide network of commerce. During the Revolution, Alcott was colonel of the 4th Regiment of Vermont Militia. In 1780, there was a British-led Indian attack on the Vermont towns of Royalton, Sharon, and Tunbridge. The raiding party burnt homes, killed livestock, and took many people prisoner, bringing them to Canada. Olcott responded by raising a militia to head to Royalton. John Slafter's fears of an Indian attack were not unfounded. This Georgian-style house has a hipped roof, which is what the Slafter house originally had, a central chimney, and overhanging boxed eaves. Like other early Norwich homes, the Olcott house has architectural features found in early colonial Connecticut homes, like the Blue Hatch House and the Slafter House. It is believed that the timbers for the back L of the house were removed from the original meeting house when it was demolished in 1817. The oldest east barn, known as the Cow Barn, has been in continuous use ever since 1789 and includes cow stanchions, sheep manger, and a threshing floor. At the time of the barn's construction, Alcott had two horses, five cattle, four cows, and 90 acres of pasture. Peter Alcott was the last lieutenant governor of the Independent Republic of Vermont, and the first lieutenant governor under the statehood. Continue down Union Village Road, the half mile, until you see a large white house on the left. Pull off to the right at the double driveway pullout, which is uphill from the house. Stop six, Meeting House Farm. Hi, this is Emily Myers. I'm happy to help share the history of the Meeting House Farm with you. It's been in our family for 106 years. All I knew growing up was living, working, and thriving here on the farm. My parents, Jay and Deb Van Arman, farmed and raised our family here since 1970. 
After I graduated from Norwich University in 1999, my husband and I have been stationed all around the world in the Air Force, but there's no better place than being back here on the farm. After 21 years, we are lucky enough to put down our roots and raise our children, the sixth Pierce generation, to grow and flourish here at Meeting House Farm. Thomas Murdoch moved to Norwich in 1767. His first house was built near the small cape you see behind you up the driveway to the west side of the road where you were parked. During the first town meeting in 1768, Murdoch was elected the town clerk, constable, and fence viewer. Within 20 years, he was able to begin building the grand Georgian-style house you see across the street with a hipped roof and double chimney. Inside, there is a central hall with a gracious staircase capped with a Palladian window illuminating the second floor. 18th century landscape murals survive in two of the bedrooms. Overcrowding from the beginning and with the town constantly growing, the first meeting house had already proven completely inadequate by 1817. On December 24th of that year, it was sold to Thomas's son, Constant Murdoch, for lumber for 100 pounds. It is said that the lumber from the old meeting house was used to partially build Murdoch's barn, thus the name Meeting House Farm. After a succession of five owners in the 19th century, the house was bought for Charles Pierce by his father-in-law, William Chandler, in 1914. It remained a working dairy farm until 1987 and continues to be an active agricultural farm. Constant Murdoch owned other farms in Norwich, one known as the Hill Farm and the other Turnpike Farm, renting them out. From 1814 to 1816, Joseph and Lucy Smith rented from Constant Murdoch, although it's not clear which farm they might have lived on. Those years proved to be challenging few years with season after season of crop failures. The year 1816 became known as 1800 and frozen to death, or the year without a summer, because it was unusually cold that year. During this time, communities were only obligated to care for impoverished community members who had been born in town. Others in need of financial assistance were regularly warned out of town and told to go back to their home communities for help. Norwich warned the Smith family out of town in 1816. Joseph left on his own for New York to find a more promising place to farm and raise his family. The family followed later, having been forced to sell most of their belongings to pay creditors. Their son Joseph Smith Jr. would go to co-found the Mormon Church with Brigham Young. Jasper Murdoch's alehouse gets its name from Jasper Murdoch, Constance's brother, who owned a palatial home with large gardens and a fish pond on the site of the current Norwich Inn. The house was at the intersection of the roads to Sharon, Thetford, and Hanover, and also served as a stagecoach stop. Located where Jasper Murdoch's stable may have been, today the brewery bottles ales, porters, and stouts bearing Murdoch's name. Continue down Union Village Road towards Norwich a half a mile. Turn right onto Turnpike Road. Now travel about one mile looking for Tilden Hill Road. Turn left onto Tilden Hill Road, drive up a steep hill to the top and stop at the intersection on Tilden Hill and Brigham Hill Roads. Pull across the intersection and park. Stop 7. The Captain Paul Brigham House. 
Welcome to the Paul Brigham Home here on Brigham Hill. I'm David Navins. And I'm Catherine Navins. We're the current owners and stewards of the Paul Brigham Home here on Brigham Hill. This cluster of homes at the intersection of Brigham Hill and Tilden Hill Roads all once belonged to the Brigham family. The yellow two-story house to your right once belonged to Paul Brigham. Captain Paul Brigham, a Revolutionary War soldier, came to Norwich in 1782, bringing his wife Lydia and family with him. He purchased 100 acres for 300 pounds, a high price suggesting that the land had already been cleared. Lydia's brother had lived in Norwich prior to the war and returned there after being discharged from the army. This settlement pattern of joining family is an age-old migration pattern that continues to this day. Family connections matter. Paul Brigham had served four years as a captain in the Continental Army, part of the time serving under George Washington. He kept a diary describing daily life in camp and on guard duty. His time in the Army included a miserable winter at Valley Forge. After moving to Vermont, Brigham was almost immediately elected to the state legislature and then served as lieutenant governor. Paul Brigham and the Brigham family had a very close relationship with local Abenaki people. In 1798, he met with Abenaki representatives to speak about the ancient occupation of their homeland. The Brigham family recounts that an Abenaki extended family used to visit and stay on their farm on Turnpike Road each year. The visits continued into the 1920s and 1930s. When Paul Brigham retired in 1820, he had served 22 terms as Lieutenant Governor of Vermont. His time away and in government suggests that he may have been more of a gentleman farmer. Paul and Lydia had five children, Thomas, Mary, Don Joseph, Paul Worcester, and Lydia. All but Mary survived into adulthood. When Paul died, he left a will which reveals how few legal rights women had. He provided for his loving wife, Lydia, allowing her to use all of his household goods and kitchen furniture and to live in his house during her lifetime. He also allowed her use of the garden and use of the woodland so she would have fuel to cook her meals and heat her house. The pastures were available for her two cows, five sheep, and hog. After her death, it would all go to their son. This arrangement was very typical for the era. Women owned no property, even though their contributions to the household were substantial. It was the women who reared the children, gardened, and worked in the dairy. They cooked at the massive hearths where cranes with long hooks or trammels held kettles and pots. It was the women who spun and wove the cloth for clothing, washed the clothes, and generally kept much of the farm running day to day. We hope you enjoy the visit and can now picture the Brigham family and farm in their heyday, as David and I often do. Go downhill on Brigham Hill Road to Beaver Meadow Road and continue to Main Street. Turn right and head back to where you began at the Norwich Historical Society. You'll be back on Burton's Plain. Stop 8, Norwich Historical Society. In the summer of 1770, a group of men gathered at the house of Jacob Burden to decide on the location of what would become Dartmouth College. 
Jacob Burden had purchased two 100-acre ranges of land which embraced the greater part of what we now consider to be the center of Norwich. Boards from his sawmill were probably floated across the river to build Dartmouth's earliest buildings. His son Elijah built the house on the corner of Elm and Main Street where the yarn shop is today. All houses held much history. The Lewis House, once the town clerk's office, and now home of the Norwich Historical Society and Community Center is no exception. It was built in 1807 by Joseph Burton on land cobbled together from his father, Elijah Burton and Joseph Hatch. In 1814, Joseph Burton died at the age of 33, leaving a wife and young son. His estate was described as having one acre of land with a dwelling house, a wood house, shed, barn, hog pen, well, and cistern. The year after Burton's death, his wife married Eliezer Raymond. Shortly thereafter, the land across from their home erupted with activity. From the parlor window, they watched the building of the South Meeting House for the new American Literary, Scientific, and Military Academy which was later became known as Norwich University at the site of what is now the Marion Cross School. Norwich was now a community with an established social order. Families were tied together by mutual interdependence and had complex credit systems that included exchange of work, skills, and goods. They were a multicultural community with a hybrid of European and Native American farming practices. They placed a high value on education. They were a deeply religious community influenced by the traditions of Calvinism, hard work, and independence. All of this tradition and these stories rest on this landscape, in the bedrock, on the fields, in the walls, and by the fires of Norwich homes today. To honor, celebrate, and preserve these stories, Maple Hill Farm, Meeting House Farm, the Brigham Hill District, and the Goodrich Four Corners District have all been put on the National Register of Historic Places. Thank you to John Moody, Donna Cross Moody, Lisa Papazian, and Brian Knight for their research. We hope you enjoyed your tour. You can find photographs and more stories of Norwich at the Historical Society website, as well as links to more podcast driving tours and walking tours.